0: Thank you, Kevin. Good morning, church family. How are you? It's great to see you all here. Um, happy Lord's Day to you. It's a blessing that we get to, to come this morning to hear from God's word. Uh, it's an honor for me to be able to stand up here and, and preach God's word as well. It was a it was a nice uh, exercise this week of going through this back half of Mark 13. And I'm excited to to share what came out of it. So if you're new here, my name is... Uh, Dave Lundberg, I'm a pastor here, special welcome to you, and um, we've been in Mark series, just getting out of going through the Psalms in the summer, so we just jumped back into Mark 13 last week, first half, and I'll be going through this second half here. So if you are willing and able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? And just by way of reminder, we stand here before we read God's word, just as an acknowledgement, right, that His word is over us, that we are under it, and out of just sheer reverence and respect and thankfulness that we have His word to hear this morning. So, this morning's sermon will be from Mark 13, uh, verses 24 all the way through 37. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or in the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. We desperately need God's help this morning. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we... Thank you, first and foremost, for Christ, for the deep, deep love of Jesus. We are all here um, because of this deep, deep love. And God, I uh, just want to publicly acknowledge and confess my great weakness as a man standing up here preaching your word. But, Lord, we know that you are good and gracious and you give giftings. And we thank you that you use vessels like me, to preach your word, to to comb through it, to have it change us and form us and shape us and convict us. Lord, I pray for those very things to take place this morning. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the biggest question this morning I have for you is, was the dress blue and black (laughs) or was it white and gold this is what more than 10 million people wanted to know within a week after this picture was posted on Facebook and I'm sure many of you remember this viral phenomenon that happened in 2015 essentially a, a mother went shopping for a dress because her daughter was getting married and she found out this she found this blue and black dress thought it would go perfect with the wedding colors so she texted a picture to her daughter and said hey what do you think about this dress? And the daughter was like, why are you getting a white and gold dress? That doesn't even go with the colors that we have. So they were debating back and forth. And they decided to take this debate to the place of sound wisdom. <laughs> the, the <laughs> right? The land that we know as fair and balanced and calm and collected, Facebook. So they posted the picture on Facebook to have their friends chime in and help settle this debate. Is the dress blue and black or is it white and gold? Well, this proved unsuccessful and added even more fuel to the fire. As the comments were almost split in half between people who were like, oh, it's definitely blue and black. No, 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 it's, it's white and gold. And so the, the wedding eventually took place, but the dress still continued to steal the limelight. All everyone could focus on was this dress. And it was even said that the uh, the, the wedding, the band that was playing at the wedding almost failed to come out and perform because they were backstage arguing about the picture of the dress. <laughs> and so causing all the commotion that it did when the wedding was over, one of their friends decided, I'm going to blog about this on Tumblr. I'm going to put this picture out there, share the wealth of such an edifying debate with the community on Tumblr. You know, is this dress blue and black or is it white and gold? Well, the day it was posted, it received around 5,000 comments, which is a lot for a blog post on Tumblr. And then as the day progressed, as as time moved on, it received nearly 840,000 views per minute in that same day. By the time nighttime came, those comments increased tenfold from 5,000 to 50,000 comments. And it wasn't long, of course, before all the social media outlets... And journalists got a hold of this dress. One journalist published an article where they interviewed a neuroscientist on the phenomenon of this dress, why people are seeing it in different colors. And it received 32 million hits overnight. People became obsessed with the mystery of this dress. They wanted answers. Well, Twitter, of course, blew up as people tagged their posts with things like hashtag the dress or dressgate, And it became the topic of four 0.4 million tweets within the first hour. So, everyone from celebrities, then of course, to politicians, to brand names. I think Pizza Hut that day was like, hey, order a pizza, it's the dress pizza. We don't know if it's, you know, six hours old or fresh out of the oven. <laughs> and <laughs> however, they can scheme and market to sell their pizza about this dress. Well, this became known as the world's largest, to date, the world's largest phenomenon. And it was dubbed as The dress that broke the internet. So there's something about this phenomenon that just grips us as human beings, right? You know you all have pulled off the side of the road to go see that like bizarre place where there's like a mummified, you know, sarcophagus from Egypt or something on your your road trip. We just love mystery and we love suspense and that just, what's just bizarre and strange, See, we love to ponder on conspiracy and we love to imagine the mysterious. And sometimes that can come to a fault if we stay there too long, right? It can become an obsession. And in a sense, I would say that as a society, we're, we're kind of addicted to mystery and conspiracy and phenomena. So much so, it can distract us from just the, bl- the boring, mundane simplicity of our everyday lives, well, Something similar can be said about the study of eschatology, which we know is the study of what the Bible says about the end times. See, nearly two-thirds of our Bibles are packed with prophecy, these phenomenal, extraordinary things that can cause quite a stir amongst its readers. And like the dress that broke the internet, Mark 13 could be considered the chapter that broke eschatology. It's a, a notorious chapter where many love to just go to, to just debate. And, and rightly so. It is loaded with exegetical landmines. First of all, the chapter in of itself consists of two, uh, two sections. One that contains an historical prediction that Jeff talked about last week. of The destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And then this back half has a future prediction. And Some of you are like, no it doesn't. It's all the same. Even this is controversial and debated. But then you dive into the verses and they're riddled with obscurity. Verse 24, but in those days after the tribulation, which days? If the tribulation happened in 70 AD and Jesus should have returned immediately after, well, shouldn't he have already come? Could that word after include a very long time span in between the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and when the end of the world's supposed to come and Jesus comes back? Verse 30, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. What generation? Is this meant to signify time or type? Meaning, is this talking about the literal time of the disciples' lives, that generation? Or is it talking about a general type of people like the Jews that excludes time? How can Jesus say that this current generation will not pass away until he comes back when they've been passed away for a very long time? Did we miss the boat? Verse 32, but concerning that day or hour, nobody knows, not even the sun. Not even Jesus knows the day or hour of his return. Isn't he omniscient? How can he sit here and talk about the end of times and when he's supposed to come back, but not even know the day or time? See, brothers and sisters, it's passages like these that are rough waters to navigate, and they must be handled very carefully and with proper expectation. So am I here to set the record straight this morning and tell you the true exposition of this chapter? Absolutely not. (laughs) No. These things have been debated for thousands of years. They've been examined and looked at from every which way by the best of scholars and theologians, and none has yet to close the loop. And what's more, instead of simply debating between two points of view, there's at least four out there. Not including tens, to twi- maybe 10, 20, 30 more that are just as, not as common. Like a hybrid of these four main views. So if this is this difficult, should we throw the baby out with the bathwater? Should we even study eschatology? Absolutely. Don't hear me saying standing up here that we should avoid this topic of eschatology altogether. I will always support how imperative it is that as Christians we have a well-balanced biblical diet where we We cover every aspect of doctrine, and we must know it to some degree. So you should definitely study eschatology. Just exercise caution when you do. So what I'm saying is this extra discernment is required, and it's because of these obscurities that I'm talking about, these exegetical landmines. There's a lot of phenomena that we can become obsessed over, and there's intentional missing pieces to the puzzle. So if we dive into eschatology, we just have to accept the fact that there are just things that we're not going to be able to fully know when it comes to the end times. Think about the prophecy of Christ's birth, or maybe the events that led up to his death. These were all spoken of and prophesied all over the Old Testament. But do you find it strange how those who spent every single day of their lives studying the Old Testament were still not prepared and never saw it clearly? Surely after all that study, they should have figured out exactly when and where and how Jesus would come. But now that it's happened, we have more detail, right? We know how he came to the earth. We know about his birth. We know about his life. And now we can look back on the Old Testament prophecies that were once obscure and go, oh, I get it. That's cool. I believe the same is going to happen when we get caught up in heaven with Christ. It will be then that Jeff and I will be tasked to preach on Mark 13 and we will get it 100% bang on. And you guys will all be happy. You're going to lift us up on chairs. We'll have a pizza party. It's going to be great. We'll know then. Listen to this perspective one theologian provides. I really appreciated this. He says, Jesus concludes his instructions with a look to the future. And warns his disciples to be alert to God's will and ways. Here Jesus points to imminent regional and future cosmic calamitous events. Disciples today need not speculate unnecessarily about specific future events. What is instead crucial is alertness regarding the essential mission of God. Readiness to suffer and trust in God's power to overcome all evil. You must be familiar with the phrase, the devil is in the details, right? It's typically used in a positive sense to support the notion that you need to go through, comb through every single minute detail of a given thing. Leave no stone unturned. Well, in the case of studying eschatology, I believe this saying is germane if we take it literally, that the devil is literally in the details. Now, obviously, the end time talk about the It talks about the devil, so that's not what I'm talking about here. But what I mean is that the devil loves to sit and camp in the weeds, the deep weeds of end-time debate, of end-time details. He sits there and waits to devour those who set up camp there and fall asleep. See, he wants them to get drunk off of conspiracy. He wants them to lose sight of the gospel, to become distracted. And he wants them to become deceived. Consider how many cults there are because of this very fact. Just off of end times prophecy alone. So when we study eschatology, we must practice the tried and true model that reigns true anytime we study scripture. And that is this: the plain things are the what? Main things. The main things are the plain things. So while Mark 13 is a notorious stop for eschatology tourists due to its exciting attractions, it also exhorts its readers eight different times to remain alert, to not fall asleep, to not be led astray. And this is ironic to me because so many take these warnings to mean that staying awake is diligently working hard to figure it all out. That that's what staying awake is. Getting lost in the signs and solving the puzzles. No, staying awake is more about your day-to-day working your salvation out in fear and trembling. It's your day-to-day living. So today, my focus this morning will be don't get distracted with end times phenomena. Stay awake to the clear teaching of Jesus. Don't get distracted with end time phenomena. Stay awake to the clear teaching of Jesus. See, as I was tasked to preach on Mark 13, You know, I was just praying, and where do I go with this? What do I do with this? And I felt so greatly convicted, I'm going to shoot for the heart. I'm going for the heart. That's what I'm doing this morning. See, my goal as a pastor is not to keep you up to speed on current world events as they pertain to biblical prophecy so that you can have a well-stocked bunker or beat the lines at the gas station and the banks when the right time comes. My goal is that you stay laser-focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are living today in a manner worthy of your calling. That's the aim, right? That your eyes are awake to the reality of the sin tendencies that course through your veins this very moment, and that every day you'll be killing your flesh so you can glorify God with your life today. So my goal is that, the majority of your energy and focus is living an upright and godly life today. I love what one commentator says about this. He says, Jesus does not speak about the future so that his followers might know exactly what will happen in the future. Rather, Jesus provides this sobering future panorama so that his followers may practice prayerful discernment in which trust in God and faithfulness to him are paramount. The instruction of Mark 13 Thus, aims at godly lives lived now godly lives lived today you know it saddens me when i see those who become obsessed taken away swept away with end times prophecy they're so proud of what they know yet they're missing the daily ordinary means of grace that are essential for christian health They think they've mastered all the clues, but they can't seem to faithfully attend church every Sunday. They solved all the puzzles, but are ensnared in some type of secret, habitual sin that they don't seem to care at all about. They fail to lead their family. They fail to honor their spouse. You see, being watchful is about staying awake to the day-to-day lives. More than pontificating about the end times and when, when the end will come. It's being vigilant and passionate about the right things. Not spending all your time looking for the Antichrist, but spending your time looking only to Christ. Don't get distracted with end times phenomena. Stay awake to the clear teachings of Jesus. So let's dive into our text and extract what we know to be clear. First, we know it's clear that the earth will be destroyed. We know it's clear that the earth will be destroyed. As mentioned earlier, Mark 13, uh, chapter 13 essentially has these two sections. One that describes um, the historical prediction of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And Jeff spoke on this last week. The other is a future prediction of Christ's return known as the day of the Lord. And this is where he comes back for the purpose of judgment. And his, re- his return is surrounded by earth-shattering events. Let's read verses 24 through 25. I'm going to throw 31 in there as well. Mark 13, 24 through 25 and 31. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So here we have some details regarding the fate of our planet. It says that the sun will be darkened, and as a result, of course, the moon won't be able to give light. We're talking utter darkness filling the land. you imagine how eerie and scary that would be? Then it goes on to say that stars will fall from the sky. Revelation 6.13 helps to give us some more detail here. It says the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Then it says that we'll see the powers of heaven shaken. This word can also be described as disturbed or agitated or caused to totter. Basically saying that everything in orbit is going to be disturbed. So this is thought to be a severe disruption of our solar system. Uh, Luke 21 helps us to see this from a different angle where the planet and the people within the planet become so overwhelmed by the magnitude of what is going on. That they they faint. They're dying out of fear from the reality that the end is happening. And sheer chaos fills the land. Uh, let's look at Luke 21, 25 through 26. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Can I share something with you? If you are currently passionate about recycling out of sheer resourcefulness, then I'm with you. I get it. I recycle too. Although I don't go as far as ripping off all the labels and (laughs) washing out the jars. Especially if it's a mayonnaise jar. I will not touch that. But if you are recycling out of fear that if you don't and everyone else doesn't you're going to bring this planet to its end and i got news for you there is not an anti-recycling carbon emitting extraordinaire on this planet that can bring our world to its end the bible tells us how the earth will end and just as it was created from nothing so it will return to nothing So it's not pollution or climate change or AI that's going to destroy the world, but it's going to be the one whom we came here to worship this morning. God will be the one that destroys the world. And just as he destroyed all of humanity in Noah's day with water, we know he will destroy everything by fire this time in the final days. Listen to how 2 Peter describes this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. By the way, this could make for a great argument for uh, verses 23 to 24. That little gap in there. So just uh, consider that. All right, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Why is it important to understand that the earth will clearly be destroyed? Well, one, so you don't have to recycle anymore. (laughs) Kidding. I'm kidding. Don't call Jeff. Kidding. Verse 11 is our answer to this question. Since the earth is to be destroyed and everything in it, then what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? See, church, if you are storing up treasures here on earth, At the expense of holy living? Do you see the vanity of this? If you are in love with the things of this world, at the expense of your relationship to God, do you see how vain this is? Let verse 31 here in Mark recalibrate your perspective. The truth that the earth will pass away, but God's words will remain forever. So wouldn't it be wise to cling to the words of the Lord? Than to put your hope in a world which will clearly have an expiration date. So the new heavens and the new earth will be our eternal home. This should be our focus of where we place our treasures. Moving on to our second point. We know it's clear that Christ is coming back to judge the world. We know that's clear. Christ is coming back to judge the world. Now I don't know when or why or how it started, but every time we have a Christmas Eve service and we celebrate Jesus' birth, I immediately get drawn to this truth. It brings me back to this truth that Christ is coming back. And I think maybe the reason why is because I often think of how crazy is it? Here I am. Here I am celebrating the birth of Jesus, a fulfillment of numerous Old Testament prophecies that happened centuries ago. You ever think about that? Like there were people hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came back, probably arguing the same way we argue today about the end times, not really fully believing that the Messiah would ever come. Then after nearly 400 years of silence from God, no prophet had spoken, no one heard from God. 400 years. There's a priest named Zechariah who had a little encounter with an angel named Gabriel. Gabriel. Gabriel told Zechariah that his barren wife would actually bear a child, and they are to name him John. And then this angel went and visited another young woman, a virgin named Mary, who lived in this humble town called Nazareth. 400 years after complete silence, this angel tells her here in Luke chapter 1, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is what I think about on Christmas Eve. It happened. This actually happened just as the prophets had spoken. Church, this means that Jesus is really going to come back, just as the prophets had spoken. And better than a prophet, Jesus himself explains his own return. Let's look at verses 26 through 27, here in Mark chapter 13. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So here Jesus describes himself as the son of man coming in the clouds in great power and glory. And then he will send his angels out to gather the elect. And then he will judge the rest of the world. We see this in many other scriptures. Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Revelation 1-7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. See, there's some religious sects out there who believe that Christ has already come back. That we, we missed the boat. But this can't be the case because his coming in the clouds and glory will be visible and recognizable to everybody on earth. And verses 28-29 through 29 assure us that when it happens, it's not going to be this cryptic, obscure, secretive thing. Everybody will know. You remember when the, the Pharisees constantly harassed Jesus wanting to see a sign from him? Matthew 12, 38, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Show us a sign. Show us a sign from heaven. If you are truly the son of God, then come off of that cross. But Jesus withheld. See, he withheld because the sign that they were asking for, the sign that everyone wanted to see and the sign that everybody wants to see now. Dave, if God's real, if Jesus is real, then just why doesn't he prove it? Well, it's on its way. you know what the sign is? This this passage tells us what the sign is in verse 26. The sign is Christ. Christ's second coming is the sign that authenticates him as the rightful Messiah King. And this will be revealed to everybody when he comes back. See, his second coming is the proof, the unveiling for all the world to see that Christ is the true King. And it will not be missed. Coming up in a few weeks, we'll be in Mark 14. And Jesus is going to stand before the council. And the high priest is going to ask Jesus a question that will put his very life at risk. Are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see me seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Yes, Mr. High Priest, I am the Christ. And you just wait to see this authenticated when I come back in glory in the clouds. That's your sign. When he comes, we will know. And in fairness, I think because the Bible talks about how Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the night, that that's meant to mean that he's going to come back the same way a thief would lurk, lurk around the shadows of the night. Right? That his return is going to be silent and discreet stealthy no it's clear that christ's second coming will not and cannot be missed he will come like a thief in the night in the sense that it will be unexpected but he will come and everybody will know that this takes us to our third point we know that christ's coming is certain but unknown that is clear christ's coming is certain but unknown let's look at verse 32 but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Need I say more? <laughs> should we really go, go in this uh, any deeper? See, this point should be very, very brief against any who claim that they know exactly when the Lord is coming back. Or against any who have said, I know when Jesus is coming back. But this is an interesting verse that Bible critics love to camp out in when it comes to the authenticity of Jesus as well as the accuracy of the Bible. They go, ah, look at that. Your Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming back. So what are we to make of this saying? I think Philippians chapter 2 helps us here. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. As perplexing as verse 32 can be, we can look to the incarnation of Jesus for clarity. It says Jesus came in human flesh, which we know he had to do if he was going to represent us, right? If he was going to come and die, he had to become human. But he still remained fully God. He just restricted the use of his divine attributes to become a man. This is what it means when it says that Christ emptied himself. Do you remember the show Undercover Boss? I don't know if it's still on. It got popular for a little, little while. But Undercover Boss was where a CEO would get, go through makeup and everything, get all disguised as a normal employee within their company. They would go undercover Interact with the employees work on the assembly line and just to just ask questions to see You know, how's the overall job satisfaction? What things are broken? It's kind of a cool idea as a CEO to to kind of get in the trenches with their employees to see what's wrong. What can I fix? Well, these undercover CEOs essentially stripped themselves of their attributes and privileges as a boss by doing this See, They didn't get to sit in the cozy office for a season They didn't get the extended lunch breaks for a season. They didn't get to go play golf every day. Mike. (laughs) Well, likewise, when Christ came to earth, he laid aside all these privileges of being God that were his up in heaven. He gave them up for a season to exemplify, to show us, to teach us, this is what it looks like for a human to be obedient to God. This is what faith looks like, human. This is what sacrifice looks like. And of course, he had to, to die as a substitute in place of you and me. So as much as the disciples maybe thought they had an in with Jesus, you know, like, hey, we're in tight network with Jesus, the God-man, they weren't getting any insider trading secrets from him. See, they had to wait patiently and unknowingly for Christ's return, just like we have to today. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I was deeply saddened as I was researching, like, causes and effects of people who become obsessed with end times phenomena. Like, what are some of these stories? And I learned that there's an actual thing called rapture anxiety. Not raptor anxiety like Jurassic Park. Rapture anxiety. I've never heard of this. And it's, it's like, very, very real. It's where people constantly live in fear over Christ's return. And, and it really, really spiked up after the Left Behind books came out because a lot of people fear that very thing, that they're going to be left behind. Um, or they fear that God's going to come back the moment they did something wrong, when they didn't have a chance to make it right. And hearing that, you're like, well, that's interesting. See, the majority of these stories came from non-professing Christians or those who are more culturally Catholic. I read stories where people would pray the rosary after each time they would steal something from the mini mart. <laughs> just in case God came back that night. Or they would pray the rosary after each time they did things that non-married couples shouldn't be doing. Every single time, let's pray the rosary, just in case God comes back. It was this constant fear hovering over them, like a game of cat and mouse, that as they would pray the rosary every time they would sin to avoid being caught in their sin if God came back. But then there are heavy sitting days, and those were hard to keep track of, right, where they spent all day sinning, And they forgot to pray the rosary and then bedtime would come and they didn't know if they were able to make up for every single sin they did. So they wouldn't sleep. They'd just be anxious, scared. What a miserable way to live. Yes, Christ is coming back. And we don't know when. But is this something that we should dread? Is it something to be feared? And brothers and sisters, this is a significant question to consider as we head into our last point here. And this point pertains directly to you. This fourth point is you are going to see Christ no matter what. You're going to see him no matter what. Four of the eight warnings to stay awake in chapter 13 come here at the end of the chapter. Let's read uh, 33 through 37. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. This is a sobering reminder to all of us that the end is near. And we don't know when that time is going to come. So we shouldn't get too comfortable with this world and let our guard down. See, whether you believe in a rapture, whether you believe that you're going to have to endure through the final tribulation, or whether you believe Christ had already come back, or whether you don't believe in Christ at all, We can all 100% bank on the fact that you will die and you don't know when. And this means that whether you see Jesus coming back on the clouds in glory in this lifetime. Or you see him in death. Christ is the final checkpoint for all of us. Right? We all have an appointment to see him. Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. Judgment. So my question to you this morning is, are you ready to see Christ? Are you ready? Are you ready to give an account for the life that you've lived? Are you eagerly anticipating his return? Or are you more like that child at home that got in trouble and is waiting for dad to get home? You know, wishing every single minute would just slow down. Well, if you remain awake and you keep your focus on him, there is no need to fear. As I was reading these stories about these people with this rapture anxiety, so many live with this philosophy like they're just going to roll the dice, right? They're going to live life the way they want to now and then try to straighten up with God kind of right, right towards the end, right? When they're on their deathbed or maybe when he comes back. And often you see this lived out in a young person's life, right? They want to ride the fence. They want to enjoy the lust of their flesh and their youth because it's fun. They're young. And then they'll get serious about their faith later on in life. You know, when they get a little more time to focus on it. Or when those habits become boring or no longer appealing. Well, here at the end of Mark 13, Christ assures us nobody knows the final hour, the final day of judgment. So you realize tonight you can see Christ one of two ways. Tonight, he could crack the sky and come riding, riding on in the clouds in glory or you could tragically die in some type of accident. Either way, you're going to see Christ. Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house is going to come. So this means you get to choose today whether facing the Lord is going to be a good thing or a bad thing. You get to decide whether you're going to strive to live upright, holy lives now, or if you're just going to risk it. You know, you're going to live life the way you want to now, in hopes that you leave just enough time right at the end to kind of squeeze on in. So consider Mark 13 to serve as both a warning and an encouragement. See, all over scripture, the Lord warns his disciples of many things. His arrest, his betrayal, his death, his final judgment, his second coming. Why? Well, it's all for the purpose that they remain faithful, hopeful, steadfast in that moment, today. Today. While they wait. And even if tribulation comes, even if it means death, that they have this hope to hold on to. It's no secret that this life that we live is getting stranger and stranger and stranger. And we shouldn't be surprised if it gets worse. Even if we have to face tribulation. And sure, we can't know all the details and decipher the obscurity of the end times. But we don't need to. Because Jesus made the essential things crystal clear to us, right? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So you too need to hear the same thing this morning. You are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior can only be found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is coming at a time that you do not know. And when he comes, he will either find you trusting in him and welcome you into eternal life. Or he'll find you living for yourself and justly unleash the wrath of God on your sinful rebellion. So what kind of life will you live in light of this truth? This is the question you should be spending most of your time figuring out. Don't sleep on it or become distracted by all these other things. My time's almost up here. The sermon's just about over. And soon you're going to walk out of these doors, you're going to go home, and life is going to continue to do what life does and just put pressure on you. You may get in an argument with your spouse on the way home. You may yell at your kids in, in sinful anger today. You may return to that secret little sin that you've been hiding or that you thought you overcame a couple months ago. But in light of all of this, your end times view or position in that moment is not going to make a world of difference as you walk out of these doors. It will not impact your heart and do the work that it desperately needs. But your view of Jesus and how you apply the gospel to your life, that is what is going to make the world of difference as you walk out of these doors. Don't sleep on this truth, church. Stay awake. If you are in Christ and living for him, then there is no need to fear his final return or judgment. Hebrews 9 tells us that Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin for good by the sacrifice of himself. And having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. James 5 provides great encouragement for us as well. James 5, 7 through 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Verse 8, very important. You also be patient. Establish your what? Your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. One pastor was interviewed of what he thinks about all the commotion and debate when it comes to studying eschatology. And he said something that I thought was very encouraging I wanted to share with with all of you. He says, so when I see all the commotion regarding end times prophecy, I use it as a time to look in the mirror to evaluate my own life and say, am I living a life worthy of the gospel? Am I loving God's people well to where if he were to come down from glory, he would see me as worthy? And if you hear nothing else about the end times, hear that it could be tomorrow. And so each of us needs to live in such a way that we are ready today. Beloved, being ready doesn't mean that you have your act all together and that you live a perfect and sinless life. Don't think that. We know that that is not the truth. And playing this game of cat and mouse with God where you sin and try to dodge judgment by making up for it before he can catch you. It's not the way it works, as many assume. Being ready and staying awake means that you are in a right relationship with God today. Not sometime in the future, not something that you plan on doing in the future when you retire or when you get a little more time on your hands. It means that you have surrendered today to your rebellious will and the way that you want to live. That you have surrendered it to him and the way he wants you to live that you trust in Christ's death to cover your sin and you eagerly wait and anticipate the day that you will be with him forever. Don't get distracted with end time phenomena. Stay awake to the clear teachings of Jesus. While millions of people know about that silly dress and have argued up and down over what color it is, um, most fail to know the sad reality that has happened after All this happened after that dress and that woman who got married uh, received their 15 minutes of fame. She was on Ellen show. I mean, it it was crazy. It was a wild ride, I'm sure, for a short time for them. But this reality of what happened next kind of flew under the radar as so many were just distracted and cared about this dress. See, this woman, 11 years later, lived a life of domestic abuse to this man that she married. It's a troubling story. She had been beaten, strangled. And controlled by her husband, who is now on trial for attempted murder. See, this very brokenness in our world is the present day reality that we should be focused on, not the color of a dress. So keep your focus on the present day things as you leave here today, church. Keep your focus on the clear teachings of Jesus and don't get distracted by other stuff. You're gonna see Jesus soon. Will he find you sleeping or will he find you awake